Okay, <clears throat> good morning. Uh, we're finished, we're closing out our series, <clears throat> What Happy Couples Know, uh, today. And we're going to talk about happy couples believe the best. Um, one quick announcement, this evening at 6 o'clock, we're going to do our, uh, share about our Israel trip. We just got back three weeks ago. And so we show you some pictures and you can ask some questions and my wife's going to have a few little Israeli food snacks and so... Please feel free to join us at 6 o'clock. If you can't, that's fine, but uh, uh, we're looking forward to that. Happy couples. What do happy couples know? Well, what do they know? Well, we talked about all of us enter relationships with hopes, dreams, and desires. Normal, it's natural. Uh, it's what we all do. The problem is, in that relationship, when I enter it with you, I kind of hand you my hopes, dreams, and desires and what seems light, natural, and normal, and things that you would want to do becomes a weight, a burden, a, a, a difficulty for you. And so that's where the struggle comes that we've been talking about. And so we've been talking about decisions, and this is really important, decisions that happy couples make because of what they know. So quickly review the first three weeks. The first one was happy couples decide, they make that choice, that they owe each other everything, but they're owed nothing in return. Now, I know it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's part of the interesting thing and fun thing about this. And when you look at happy couples, they don't normally make sense, do they? Uh, they don't seem like they fit together, or maybe they have financial problems, or they have physical problems, but they're still happy. And so they make the decision. We've asked you the question, what does your spouse or a significant other owe you? And the answer is nothing. If you can Take this box back. <laughs> um, you can be happy. And we're going to talk. And we, yes, last week we told you about what to do with your box, but that's coming up. Then the second week we talked about happy marriages are submission competitions, race to the end of the line. They're selfless. Sub means to put yourself under. So I want you to go first, and you want me to go first, and that's where the competition is, not trying to get first. Third decision. Happy couples know that sometimes you have to throw things. And if you weren't here last week, it doesn't mean this kind of throwing, okay? So don't throw things at your spouse or significant other. Uh, we talked about casting or throwing all your cares or your hopes, dreams, and desires on God. All those frustrations, all the worries, all the anxiety, you cast it on God. Today's topic is this. Happy couples know... That they have a choice. They have a choice about happiness. You do have a choice. It does, often doesn't feel like a choice, does it? But you do have a choice every day. And every day we make these choices without even thinking about them. And we're going to call it the happy choice. Happy couples make the happy choice. And we'll explain to you what the happy choice is in a few minutes. Now, we're going to look at something Paul wrote. Now, Paul is a Jew. But he ministered or started churches among people that weren't Jews, mostly among pagans, Gentiles, non-Jews. So there's a built-in struggle here. When you're talking to Jews, you say, oh, we got the same God, uh, we got the same Old Testament. You can refer to that. When you're talking to a pagan, you have none of that. In fact, their gods and the one true God are so different that that's a barrier to, to overcome. So to a pagan... Your worship of God was to try and make your gods happy. They didn't care about you. 
And if you try to make them happy, if you could please them, maybe they would be nice to you. They would give you good crops, or they would give you children, or they'd keep you healthy. And so it involved all kinds of sacrifices. In fact, sometimes even sacrificing the life of children to try and make the gods happy. Um, So that's the mindset of a pagan when you talk about God. So Paul is addressing this audience, and he's saying, okay, this God, our God, the one true God, he doesn't operate like that. He's different. Uh, In order to please this God, our God, you actually treat people the way your God treats people. And that's love, grace, mercy, and all those things we, we talk about all the time. So instead of being a vertical thing, Christianity is first and foremost a horizontal thing. And we talked about for several weeks, Jesus said, I got one commandment for you, to love each other like God loves you. So it's horizontal. Now, the passage we're going to look at is pretty familiar. It's pretty common. In fact, uh, I asked my wife this morning if this was read during our wedding, and she said it was. The problem is if you really think about what it says, it's probably not the best thing to, to read at a wedding. Most couples have no clue about this kind of love when you get, when you get started. We got somebody's coming up on an anniversary back here. I don't know if we read it in your service or not. You'll have to tell me later. Um, first, right? June 1st? Second. Second. Okay. I, uh, first weekend in June. Anyway. So, uh, he's writing to a church in Corinth. And I uh, believe he wrote three letters at least. We've got two of them. We call them 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And chapter 13, he called the love chapter. Now, just before this, he'd been talking about kind of the, the struggling with, uh, we call it speaking in tongues or uh, uh, heavenly language. And so, this is a continuation of that discussion he said, that's good, that's fine, that, uh, that could be part of your worship or your Christian life. But he wants to make sure they, the main thing is the main thing, right? And so we'll pick it up in what we call verse 1. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels. So if I know earthly languages and I know heavenly languages, that'd be pretty cool, right? But I don't didn't love others, I would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'd just be a lot of hot air. I wouldn't be of much worth or much good to anyone because that stuff may be good, but that's not most important. What's most important is love. Don't kid yourself by thinking because I can speak this language that I am automatically good. Now, it made me think of some of us that are preachers. We got three preachers here this morning, counting myself, at least three. And we get up and speak, and you may think, oh, he's a fantastic speaker. He's a great speaker. And you judge me on how well I can speak. Well, I can, that's a skill I can learn. That's something I can practice. If you want to really know how I, what I'm like, if you really want to judge me, you know you need, who, who you need to talk to? My wife. All right? My kids. People that spend time with. People in my small group. That's a much better judge of who I am and how spiritual I am or how mature I am than how well I can speak when I'm up here. So he said, it's not about speaking well. Secondly, he said, and this pretty cool stuff in here. Next verse. If I had the gift of prophecy, wow, I could tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. That'd be pretty cool, right? And if I could understand all God's secret plans, so you can ask me any question you want, and I could answer it about God. I possess all knowledge. I'm the smartest guy in the room. All right? 
if I had all those qualities, could do all that stuff, that'd be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? And then he says, if I had the faith that I could move mountains, which is interesting, I learned it this week. King Herod, which I'm going to talk about a lot tonight, he was a, during Jesus' day. <clears throat> he did a lot, of, a lot of good things and terrible things. But he actually did this. He had them construct, we, we call it a mountain, we call it a hill. <laughs> he had them move dirt, make a hill, and to build something on top of it. So people hearing this would actually know, hey, yeah, King Herod, I can do something greater than King Herod did. And if you come tonight, we'll tell you about some of the amazing things King Herod did. But if I could do all those things, but I didn't love others, I'd be a nothing, I'd be a zero. Now, one of the problems we have, we equate knowledge with being deep or spiritually deep. And somebody can know a lot about the Bible and still not be a very spiritual person. In fact, you probably, you've probably met people like this. They know the Bible really well, but you don't want to spend much time with them. <laughs> okay? Unfortunately. So what is the measure of spiritual maturity? Paul's telling us it. It is to love, and he's going to describe us what we mean by love in, uh, in a couple of verses here. So the measurement is love, not knowledge, or uh, even faith that can move mountains, whatever that might be. Then he gives us another benchmark to judge by. <clears throat> Next verse. If I gave everything I have to the poor. No, nobody does that, do they? Uh, we may struggle with giving anything to the poor. We may struggle with giving 10% or tithe, whatever. He said, I, I, I give it all to the poor. And not only did I give it all to the poor, I sacrificed my body. Um, you know, I, my health suffered maybe. And I could boast about that. Hey, look at me. I gave all my money away and look, I'm, my health is suffering because of, uh, of the sacrifices that I've made. But if I didn't love others... I would have gained, again, zero, nothing. It's of no value at all. Now, I'm going to divert a little bit here. We have this part of the church, we, I call it prosperity gospel, that says God wants you to be wealthy. Um, I don't agree with that, but even if you'd agree with that, the problem I have with that theology is this. The way it's normally taught is you give to God to get from God. Now, anytime you give to get... There's no value in that, is there? There's no love in that. There's no sacrifice in that. There's no value when you give to get. So that's all I'm going to say about that this time. The other issue about love is this. In our culture mostly, love is portrayed as a feeling, isn't it? Now there's a big problem with feelings. They change a lot. And we tell couples when we do counseling, Feelings are real. They're not always justified. Feelings lie. Okay? Sometimes I feel like my wife doesn't love me. Does that mean she doesn't love me? Yes, she still loves me. Feelings can lie. So Paul's going to tell us, and as you look at the list, as we look at this, this isn't about feelings. And when I hear that, I always think of Jesus. Did Jesus feel like dying on the cross? Absolutely not. He begged God to get out of it just hours before he was put on trial. In fact, we were actually in all those places. It was pretty cool. But um, all that stuff happened. So, okay. Then he's going to give us a list of ways to kind of understand or, or explain love. So, here, here we go. Love is patient. 
I, I have to admit, when I go through this list, I get, feel more convicted as I go along. So maybe you'll join me here. But patient persons, I get zapped at the first one here. Um, but I'm patient, okay? I, I, I can, you know, wait. I am kind. I, I am nice. And my wife says to me, unfortunately, sometimes, you're not being very nice. So it's something I have to work on. And then we have, it's not jealous. It's interesting. We watch uh, young people, teenagers. What, can you, what way do you describe teenage love? It is what? Jealous, isn't it? Uh, they're you know, they're going to start liking somebody else's school better than me, etc., etc. But this kind of love is not jealous. It's not boastful. I'm going to say, hey, look at me, how great I am. Proud, we talked about that a little bit last week. Or just rude. Some translations say... Uh, um, Dishonor, dishonor. So whether you can find it in the Bible or not, if my thoughts, my feelings, my actions dishonor you, then it's not love. Then he goes on. This is huge. It doesn't demand its own way. Do you find yourself being type, a kind of a controlling type of person? Right? No, 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 no. You don't demand your own way. You don't kind of control the situation or the other person is not irritable, doesn't get angry, doesn't lose his temper. I'm getting much better at this one. I feel a little better there. Uh, and then this is huge. And keeps no record of being wrong. Might say you have a short memory. I like the old story about the guy who goes to his buddy and says, hey, my wife got historical last night. He said, you mean hysterical? He said, no, historical. She brought up every bad thing I've ever done. Love doesn't do that. Now, you say forgive and forget. We can't always forget. But you act as if you forget or it never happened. Okay, is this the kind of love you have when you first get married? Yeah, that's why I say it's not really the kind that you, it's nice to read, but it's really not where people are. Uh, then he goes on. Doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. And then this translation, there's translations, some say it negatively, some positive. And the NIV does it this way. It always protects. Next verse. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. And then flipping around, love never fails. Now, the interesting thing about this list, or this whole, the whole big list, but this part of the list, most of it is dependent upon me. It's up to me to, to protect. It's up to me to hope. It's up to me to persevere. But trust is kind of, it's on you, right? Trust has to be gained. Trust has to be earned. It seems, right? But we're going to see this kind of love is not based on that kind of trust. And when whatever else fails in your relationship, this is where we default. I'm always going to protect, I'm always going to trust, and I'm always going to hope, and I'm always going to persevere. Now, I'm going to try and illustrate it up here. We talked about make, when we bring our hopes, dreams, and desires to our significant other, they become expectations, become a weight. <clears throat> now, there's always a gap between expectations, and we're going to use this word experience, Okay? So I expect my wife to be home at 5 o'clock and she doesn't get home at 6 o'clock. I expect, uh, you know, my husband 
to pay the bills on time and, you know, this bill is late. Whatever the expectations are, there's a gap. And the list could be endless. Anytime we experience a gap, happens all the time, when we experience a gap, we have a decision to make. We have a choice to make what we put in the gap. And here's our two choices. We can choose to believe the best. Uh, I know she's late, but I'm sure she's doing something important. Um, can't wait to hear what it is. Or we can assume the worst. Now, she doesn't care about getting home and fix me dinner. If she did, she'd be here. But she's not, so she doesn't care. So we have all the time, over and over again, we have to make a choice. How are we going to feel? How are we going to respond to this gap between our expectation and what actually happens, what actually experience? Am I going to assume the worst? Or am I going to believe the best? It is a choice. It doesn't always feel like a choice, does it? It just feels like a reaction. Late again, late again, late again. I'm just, you know, I, my natural reaction is she's late again, and no good, no, no good excuse. But this is, the, this is again, the, the key, the foundation to this happy choice is making the choice to do what? Not assume the worst, but believe the best. Now, I'm going to share with you this kind of fantastic uh, research project comes out of, a, out of a, um, a leadership book, a business leadership book called The One Thing You Need to Know. And the author here cites a 20-year study of happy couples, of all things. Now, that's not just couples that, that gutted it out, just for the kids' sake or whatever, but they were actually happy. They enjoyed each other. They were happy with each other. 20 years plus. And when you do research like this, you always are looking for Common denominators. If I can figure out the one thing that all these happy couples do, I can tell other couples the key to being happy, right? Find the common denominator. You also enter uh, these kind of studies <clears throat> with an expectation of what you're going to find. So their expectation is pretty logical. One was, you know, you enter marriage with all this, you know, high expectations, what the other couple's going to be and do for you and so forth. And experience teaches you just, they're just not that uh, perfect. They're not that able to do all that stuff. So their, their evaluation or speculation was that spouse, happy couples downgrade their expectation of their spouse. Seems to make sense, right? So, 20-year study. After the 20-year study, they found it was just the complete opposite. Amazing. And so what they'd do, they'd give questions to, the, to each spouse. And they'd give them a list of questions, a rate of 1 to 10 and so forth, on different areas, lots of questions. And then they would have rate yourself and then rate your spouse. And so they did that. So example, um, how dependable are you? And so, for example, I would rate myself, oh, I'm pretty dependable, maybe a 6. My wife would be asked the same question, and she would answer, oh, he's really dependable. He's an eight. All across the board, spouses would rate their, their, their spouse higher than their spouse rated themselves. All across the board. So instead of downgrading their expectations of even their spouse, evaluation of their selves, they rated them more positively. 
They even use the expression, love must be blind. Okay? And then they use a term, and I, I really like this, and we'll give you an illustration. It produces an upward spiral of love. And they describe what they mean by upward spiral of love. So this illusion that my spouse is better than they even judge themselves creates a conviction. They really are that way. And he's only a six dependable, but I, I believe, really believe he is an eight or a nine dependable. Consequently, that conviction leads to security. Well, I can really trust that person. I really feel comfortable with that person that they're going to be dependable. Security or trust brings about intimacy, and intimacy is what everybody desires, to be able to connect with the person, to be able to be open to the person. So if I feel safe, if I feel I can trust you, I'm going to open myself up to you and vice versa, and we're going to connect on a deeper level. produces intimacy. And of course, intimacy fosters love. And love does what? Brings about the illusion which creates the conviction that leads to security, that brings about intimacy, that fosters love. It's an upper spiral. Now, all relationships are spiraling all the time. They're either spiraling up or spiraling down. The key is, when you notice it, my wife and I have gotten pretty good at this, it starts to spiral down, you intervene and begin to, to spiral up. So they made a recommendation, and I think this is a great recommendation Paul could have wrote this. <laughs> Find the most generous explanation for the other's behavior and then choose to believe it. It's a choice. Choose to believe it. Okay? So, when they're late, they just don't care, or when they're late, they must be doing something important. When there's a gap, we always have the choice. We're going to assume the worst. They don't care. They don't love me. Or am I going to believe the best? Now, there's some obstacles here. Ten times in a row they've been late. Ten times in a row they didn't pay this bill on time. So, consequently, what am I supposed to expect? That they're not going to pay it or they're going to be late the next time. That's an option. That's what we think is more of a reaction than a choice, but even on the 11th time, you and I have the choice, I'm going to believe the best. They're going to be home on time. They're going to pay the bill on time. Whatever it might, gap might be. The other thing is we all bring baggage into a relationship, right? From, again, from our experiences mostly. So if my mom treated my dad that way or my dad treated my mom that way, then it's just natural for me to, to fall into that uh, uh, Behavior pattern. <clears throat> but I want to give you a kind of a, uh, a warning here. Suspicion is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I'm looking for my spouse to mess up, I'll eventually find it, won't I? That's from my side. But on the other side, my spouse, if they know this, often they're going to just say, there's no sense trying. I might as well even try. So suspicion is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Low trust sets the person up and sets the relationship up for failure. So let's get back to what Paul wrote. Back to verse 6. He said, don't rejoice about injustice, but rejoice whenever the truth wins out. 
That means I'm not trying to catch my spouse messing up. That's what that means. I'm seeking truth. I'm seeking to believe. I'm seeking to trust. And then he gives us that list again. Always protects. Always protects what? First and foremost, it's always protecting the relationship. So we put we before I. Protect the relationship. Always trust. That's that. <laughs> Find the most generous explanation and choose to believe it. Always hopes. That means to be positive. The glass half full, half empty deal. I'm choosing to believe the glass is half full. And then perseverance is interesting. Perseverance implies what? Resistance. Hard work. This is going to be difficult. And so I need to persevere. I need to, some people tell me, you know, marriage is hard work. It, it's work. It's something you have to do. It's something that doesn't happen naturally. You have to work at it and persevere. And consequently, if we do those four things, this kind of love never fails. The other kinds of love we talk about maybe, but this kind of love will never fail. So here's the question. We all have to ask ourselves. Do you choose when there's a gap between your expectations and your experience? Happens all the time. Do you choose to believe the best or to assume the worst? And let me remind, remind you of this. It's your choice every time. Even after the 10th time, even after the 100th time, uh, quote unquote, you got let down. And that's our pushback. But they, they don't always, but we use that word now. They always, or they never. There's words you should ne never use in your relationship, by the way. <clears throat> so let's think about some options. All right, here's some options. In fact, if you've got a child that's, you know, thinking about getting married or in a relationship, or if you have children that someday are going to be in a relationship. When you sit down and have that talk about their upcoming marriage, let me ask you if this is what you're going to tell them. Here's what I'd like you to do in your marriage, and this is, will be successful. Delight in uncovering their mistakes. Thrive on speculation. Assume the worst and embrace doubt. And you'll have a great marriage. Anybody going to do that? No. That's, it's silly. It's stupid, right? Let me ask you, does that work? That doesn't work. Doesn't work. Now, another thing, and we'll be finished here in a minute. One thing we all do all the time is, I, I use the term self-talk. Talk. I heard a new term, uh, tell ourselves stories. Uh, new term this week. So, you know, my wife is late. So I start, well, you know, maybe she had a flat tire. Maybe the car broke down. Maybe she was in an accident. You know, we start talking to ourselves. We make up stories. You know what happens with that self-talk or those stories? The illustration I was reading this week, uh, this lady was talking about her husband, and she said none of it was true. So be careful of our self-talk. Choose to believe the best. Now here's your homework. Now the problem with any doing anything is, we think, I can't always do that. Can I brush my teeth every night for the rest of my life? That seems impossible. Can I brush my teeth tonight before I go to bed? I think I can do that. Maybe tomorrow. So here's your homework assignment. Didn't want to overwhelm you, right? 
Here it is. For just one week. So between now and next Sunday, I'll ask, hopefully remind, remember to ask you next Sunday. <clears throat> I want you to decide to believe the best. When there's that gap, happens all the time, between expectations and experience, choose to believe the best. Choose to trust the other person. Because you know what trust does? Trust produces acceptance or implies acceptance. And everybody's drawn to acceptance, isn't it? That's what we talk about as a church. We need to accept people to come here, no matter you know, what they look like, how they, uh, what they drive, you know, how they dress, whatever. Because acceptance draws us. Because God accepts us, right? Just as we are. Now, do you have these difficult talks? Obviously, you talk about those difficult things. But at the end, you choose to believe the best. <clears throat> now, the most important thing in any relationship starts with a relationship with God. And so, if you want to make this love possible, to be empowered to actually love that way, the most important thing is for you to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then you are empowered to actually love this way because he loves that way. So as I pray here before we have our final song, I'm going to pray for you to step across that line and enter into a relationship with Jesus this morning. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to, to step across the line for people here that have never become Jesus followers. <clears throat> they accept that gift. They receive your forgiveness. Uh, they are promised eternity in heaven. They have purpose and meaning in life. They are empowered to actually love this way, involved in the, in the relationship. Um, God, I pray for each person here. This love is not natural, it's not easy, it's not normal, but it's transformational. And we pray that we would love as you love us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.